Hi, everyone. Welcome to our podcast, Frontier Faith. Today, we're going to be trying something different than what we've been doing in the last few episodes. It's still a really new podcast, and we're still figuring different things out. And as we've been sharing our podcast with some friends and family, we've heard feedback that perhaps a shorter podcast would be better. And so what we are doing for this conversation on church and culture, and we'll be doing this in the foreseeable future, is we will separate our conversation not into two parts, but into three. And we are going to keep the format that we've been doing, which is we're going to talk about our upbringing and the inheritance that we have from our heritages. And we're then going to deconstruct that or show where deconstruction happened for us. And then finally, we're going to try to point towards a way forward. As we always say, and we'll continue to say, we don't have the answers, but we can at least give you some thoughts of where we are with the particular topic that we're talking about. So each one of those will be its own episode within this conversation. So every conversation will now have three episodes. So the episode you're listening to here, it will be about our inheritance around church and culture. We're going to talk about that and the benefits that that inheritance gave us at certain times and probably still gives people today. And then the next episode will be about the deconstruction around that. And then finally, where we might be able to move forward. Thank you for your patience. I hope you enjoy this episode and this conversation and the ones to come as we continue to live on the frontier with you and with Jesus. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our podcast called Frontier Faith. We are a podcast that declares that it is okay not to know. So this podcast kind of arose when Nate and I found ourselves in a spot where we were having a lot of questions about our faith, about God, about the religious backgrounds we grew up in. And many of them were questions that we weren't able to really honestly answer or wrestle with before. And they brought us to this kind of, like, as we've called it, a frontier, um, a place where we're not sure where it will lead. And you can't always see what's in front or what's coming up on the horizon. But it's something new. It's a place where it's okay to investigate and really ask and work on trying to find some answers, at least as much as possible, for those questions that were so difficult before. My name is Nathan Whitaker. My name is Ryan Harris. Welcome to Frontier Faith. Today we're going to be talking about a topic that we feel is pretty broad, that we feel that many of you will probably fit into some of the descriptions we have here today. And that topic is church and culture. We're going to talk about three things throughout this podcast. We're going to talk about our upbringing, what we inherited as a church and culture together. Then we're going to start to deconstruct or demonstrate how that traditional understanding, traditional to us, how that understanding started to show cracks. And then we're going to finally talk about where we go with this 
as we have been doing and as we will do, none of this is to judge anyone who sees things differently than us. None of this is to say that we know, um, certainly by Ryan's introduction, we don't know. In fact, it's okay not to know. This is just a place for us to talk about those things. And so we're going to be talking about where we think we are and maybe some ways forward with the challenges that we bring up through our experiences. So church and culture is a really interesting and complicated and complex uh, discussion. Many of many people go through different ways of talking about this, and it is an academic field of study too. In fact, Ryan and I, both in our practical department of our um, doctorate work, we had to read a book called Christ and Culture, which is basically this, The Church and Culture, and we're not going to go through that book, but it laid out a way for you to think about how the church interacts with culture. And it's a really tricky thing. And what we discovered through that reading of the book and, and many other things, Ryan and I had different stories yet related stories of how the church was given to us, how the interaction between church and culture was given to us. And so I want to start out by asking Ryan, how was that interaction given to you? Um, I grew up in the Pentecostal side of Christianity. And while I won't go into the entire history of the Pentecostal movement in America, just very um, briefly, you know, Pentecostalism has its roots in um, a few different things. But one of them is, you know, Wesleyan Methodism, and another one is revivalism. But the one that I think really um, fits for what we're talking about today is another big part of it was the holiness movement. And the holiness movement was very much, and it still exists in some forms today, it hasn't disappeared, um, but it was very much about how a person lived and that it was super important for a person who, like a Christian, I mean, to live righteously, to live a life of holiness as they defined it, which was always shown in behavior or not behaving in a certain way, depending on what you were talking about. In fact, people from the holiness movement were very involved in uh, getting prohibition to be a thing in the United States because drinking was one of the things that you, a Christian, should never do. And the point of this idea that uh, a person's life and how they live is one of the central parts of their faith, I think there's kind of two ways you could talk about that idea. On the one hand, it was um, maybe the charitable way to look at it is to say that it was to show people how living for Jesus makes for a better life. The idea being that they would see um, a righteous life and that that would kind of bring conviction and ultimately maybe even help you um, bring the gospel to them. The, the other side of that, though, is that it um, became a very legalistic thing wherein your behavior, or lack thereof, depending on what you're talking about, was very much what decided whether you were a Christian or not. And so that was kind of very much the life that I grew up in. It was always super important that you followed the rules, so to speak, but that you didn't live in a way that was the term that was always used was worldly, right? You wanted to be like Christ and not be like the world, um, as they would term it. 
So we'll talk more about that as we go on, but I just wanted to ask, so Nate, what was, what was yours like? What was your experience of this idea of church and culture? Well, just going off of what you said, it was really interesting. I think for me, uh, Luther's small catechism is a big part of my story uh, as a Lutheran, especially in a conservative church body. Uh, it was confirmation is something that you have to do, um, and that's a whole nother thing. But uh, it was basically the adult basics of faith uh, in the Christian world. And his catechism starts, interestingly enough, it starts with the Ten Commandments. It starts with Luther's discussion and, and description of those. And, you know, the, the nerdy Lutheran out there might say, well, instead of just giving the law, it gives the benefits of this. But what ends up happening is, uh, Ryan talked about this in the first episode, that uh, there are three uses of the law. And there's the curb, which is uh, don't do this or you're going to get hurt type stuff. So, you know, don't murder someone or, or you're going to go to jail. Uh, number two is the mirror, which shows you your sinfulness. And number three is uh, the redeemed life. There's a lot of other ways to say that, but this is what a good Christian, quote-unquote, should do. And you would think, hearing Ryan's discussion and hearing how I'm setting this up, that the problem or, or the tradition, not the problem, the tradition that I received was a focus on the third one, but that's just not true. It was focus on mirror of how miserable and wretched I am as a sinner. And... What was fascinating for me at hearing Ryan, it just kind of occurred to me that this was going on, is that the church and culture, the way that this all worked out, or at least the way we're beginning this conversation, is I very desperately wanted to avoid seeing my sinfulness, not because I wanted a good life or live a, a holy life, according to the way Ryan was saying it, but I just, I hated bringing the same sin to confession each and every day. We didn't have confession like a, a Catholic does. There's nothing wrong with that. But we had corporate confession. There was just a pause during the confession for you to confess your sins. And I found myself confessing the same thing week in and week out. You could probably guess what that is, being a teenager. Yeah, well, teenage, teenage boys shouldn't have to do those kinds of confessions. It's all the same <laughs> for all of us, probably. And I just, I didn't want to do it. So there was just this thing where church started to get defined for me in relation to the world as a way for me to define my sin or a way for me to live so that my sin doesn't burden me quite as much. That's interesting. So was was this then like... Does that mean that like you saw church as a way to um, unburden you of your feeling of like guilt or sinfulness, or was it a way to identify that, or, or like w w what did that look like for you? Again, I'll, I'll do what you did, which was there's the charitable and uncharitable. The charitable way is to say that I think the intention is both of those things that you said is to be unburdened because confession is always followed by absolution. So the grace always comes and says you're forgiven by Jesus Christ. Um, and to make you more aware, this is the third use of the law, so that you don't do those things as much. The uncharitable way, or at least 
the way I experienced it is church was kind of a nightmare to go to because I always felt as though I was being judged by God because I'm told time and time again that these sins are going to kill me and I have to confess them, so I put real stuff to it. And then I get forgiven, but, you know... (laughs) I don't really feel that because then I come back the next week and then the next week and the next week and there you go. Because you've got that mirror of the law that you're always being forced to look into, right? Right. And I think if we were to turn that a little bit, what ends up happening, at least in in Lutheran circles that I've noticed, is that becomes either something that's completely introspective and so people, and as a pastor I've met some of these people, I know they're out there, they're so burdened that if you don't tell them they're forgiven, they kind of lose their shit Hmm. um, because they don't know how to handle that. They don't, as I would say, they don't really feel forgiven or, um, you know, I would say they don't believe they're forgiven, but then that puts them at fault. Um, It's not their fault that they don't believe it. It's they've been told they don't have to believe they're forgiven. They, they are told something else. So it could be internal or it could be directed external because that's so uncomfortable. And so then you get into this comparison game, which is, well, at least I'm not cheating on my wife. like <laughs> Right, so-and-so. right. At least I didn't murder somebody. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Huh. But so that's that's really interesting to me, though, because like from what I know of Lutherans, which is more than some and not as much as many, um, like this whole idea of Luther's about, you know, being justified by grace and not by what you do. And yet what what you're describing sounds a lot like um, like you are continually being reminded like you haven't done enough to be forgiven or something. Yeah. And it, it brings up something we talked about last time and it'll come up constantly. It's lessening us to make God better, to make him more holy, more gracious. Oh, okay. Well, it's, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So what, so what ends up happening is in my mind, the tradition I inherited, I never questioned whether or not God was good. I never questioned whether he was loving. I questioned whether or not it really applied to me. So that's how I felt when it came to this pull between holiness or for us it's expressed in the Ten Commandments and what's happening internally with me. You talked a lot about holiness in your tradition. How did that impact you inside? It's been a very difficult thing. It was a difficult um, environment to grow up in. Uh, You know, there were a lot of rules in my house, and all of them, I think, were well-intended, you know, in the sense of Um, yes, like now I look at them and think they were unreasonable, but I think like the rules were intended to, you know, keep us right with God, so to speak, you know, keep us in right relationship with him because, you know, in my kind of Christianity growing up, um, you know, you couldn't, we wouldn't say you could lose your salvation, but things like backsliding and being lukewarm and all of these things and, you know, missing the rapture because you're not living holy enough, you know, all of those things were a real, a real thing, a possible consequence for not living this quote unquote holy life. And so what that did for me was I was terrified all the time because I never could feel like I actually met 
these standards, whether they were my parents or my own that I applied to myself or what I thought God and the Bible required in terms of, you know, that kind of stuff is, you know, it's interesting. You talked about how you had to confess every week and you were confessing the same thing over and over again. And it kind of reminds me of, for, for me, the way that was expressed was that because you know i was taught about backsliding and you can you cannot be in you cannot be right with god if you sin too much this kind of stuff i was getting saved quote unquote every possible chance i could and and mm. when i was a teenager i mean like every night i'd say the prayer of salvation as i was taught it you know god i'm a sinner i've done these things please forgive me you know that kind of thing because i was just never sure that what i had done last time actually held through whatever real or imagined sinful things I'd done between those two times, you know? Um, So it created a lot of fear for me and this idea that I could never quite measure up to really any standards, regardless of whose standards those were. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, when when you're in a Lutheran seminary, they tell you that that's going to happen in, in traditions like yours, and yet they don't say... We have the same problem. It's just expressed differently because, you know, of course they can't. They have to say that they're better. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know, it'd be interesting. I'd have to do more research, but I bet you could find something like this in many, if not all, Christian traditions. Yeah, I'm sure you could. So I think the running theory that we have right now, at least in terms of uh, how the church and culture relate, is that internally we're both feeling these kinds of things, and if we're both feeling them, there's a good chance that the majority of people, or at least other people, are feeling the same things. And what I've started to notice as I grew a little bit older, past the time that I was in my dad's church, I started to notice that there's this huge conversation around sin, which is kind of what we're talking about, in relationship to the church and the world. And the way that I usually heard that in college, I went to a state school, um, let's say the state school. And uh, I know, roll your eyes. It's okay. I love it. <laughs> I did. I did. <laughs> um, and we had on um, our big gathering area, which was like right smack dab in the middle of campus where you had to walk, there were preachers that would condemn students that were walking for being worldly for you know having sex probably um and more and more and there was just this interesting thing that i started to notice is that there there were quite a bit of christians lutherans too i started to pick it up in lutheranism that were really comfortable talking about the sins of other people and not very comfortable talking about their own sins well, but that makes sense, doesn't it? Because if you can talk about other people's sins, it gives you a focus that isn't your own inadequacy or your own impending hellfire or your own um, whatever it is, right? It, it's a great distraction mm-hmm. and a way to probably feel secure, but also, I mean, there's some self-righteousness in that too. But I, I suspect for most of those people, it was maybe even some kind of weird and not okay, but defense mechanism for them maybe. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think it's something where it's much easier. And you see this with kids. I have two young ones. It's a lot easier for each one of them to point out the faults of the other person than their own. Right, right. So much easier. Hey, hey I mean, I see that with a lot of adults, too. You know, I mean, it's <laughs> not it's not unique. I wish it were unique to kids, but 
but it's not. It's always easier to point out someone else's faults than to admit that you messed something up or whatever. And you and I, we grew up, I'm sure it's true at other times, and it would be very interesting to hear those stories from other people, um, both younger and older than us. Um, but we grew up in a time where it seemed like the external focus from the church was a lot stronger than I myself have witnessed otherwise, especially during my college years, your late high school years and beyond. There seemed to be this push from my perspective, and it sounds like you had it already in in your tradition, this push to criticize, to judge even the world. Yeah, I think I think the um, the idea was very much that um, Christians are are. um, How do I want to say this? I think the idea was that Christians are the arbiters of what what is and what isn't okay, you know, and everything the world does is not okay. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I I mean, that sounds so sweeping, but I honestly think that I would characterize it that way. Yeah. Where I, so I want to talk about where we saw that, how we saw that, and then we'll dive into a deeper level of that, or at least an example of what we see in America um, at a level that everyone else could see it. But the way I saw that the most which is probably not surprising to you, was on the level of intellectual assent, intellectual beliefs. Yeah. Um, and I say that not just because uh, I'm a logical guy and I think that way, but my, my tradition is very much interested in believing the right things and uh, describing those beliefs <laughs> correctly, you know? And so that's where I started to see it for me was, Funny enough, not in other uh, attacks against other Christians, although that was definitely part of it, and we could talk about that another time. It was more describing certain beliefs within the culture that were not godly, were not Christian, were not good. Um, And the big word that I've latched on to would be moral. They haven't been moral. And so, you know, when you go to college, it would be very interesting to know about college kids today. But when I went to college, uh, Christian ministries all over the place, except for on my campus, everywhere else, they were just so concerned about making sure that you didn't have sex. That was like the big thing that they were. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Because the world would end if you did, you know, you'd go straight to hell. Yeah. And they had these huge, like, narratives behind what would happen if you do. You say that in cheek, uh, tongue in cheek, but it's certainly true. Or, you know, the more, let's say, the other consequences of it. And those stories would be spinned out, and you know, STDs and pregnancies pregnancy and, and so AIDS forth. And yeah, all of it. Yeah, all of that would be spun out of control. And yet, the the reason why from a Lutheran perspective, why you wouldn't want to do that was because of the Sixth Commandments. Sixth? Fifth? I'm terrible at that. Um, You shall not commit adultery. And the whole argument was a logical, theological argument that said, you know, you don't do this not because God's saving you for marriage, but because God designed creation this way. 
and it yeah. works better if you <laughs> play by the rules. So you fit within the paradigm that God created if you do it this way. Right. And then, yeah. of course, you don't have to take that back to confession and deal with that and have the burden put on you. Would it surprise you to hear that um, the way that was presented in my world very much was about purity <laughs> or impurity? No. <laughs> uh, like, I mean, um, very much the once you do this, you can't undo it. And, you know, um, your uh, it's a spiritual thing that's only supposed to be in marriage and, and all these things. Right. And that's a whole another topic. I could talk about the implicit misogyny and that idea. But um, this idea that, you know, sex wasn't the only thing, but it was one of the big ones in the 90s and early 2000s when I was growing up. It was kind of the the uh, issue of the of the of the zeitgeist at the time, the Christian zeitgeist or something. But yeah, this idea that well, we don't do that because that's that's um, un, unrighteous. And I said that kind of snobbily, but it wasn't always that. I mean, I think for a lot of people, it came from genuine concern. You know, like it's not mm-hmm. saying that like there aren't concerns that come up from promiscuous sex, right? There are, but the problem I discuss, I saw as I grew up was that it was always couched in terms of purity and impurity. And once you did something. Um, you were impure and in the area of sex, it was real tough to ever fix that. Yeah, that's interesting. And so how did how did people in your world characterize the world? What were the stories or what was the description that they had of people who, you know, let's be honest, if you had sex outside of marriage, period, you were promiscuous. It didn't matter if you had one or a thousand partners. Right. So how did they describe that? Well, you know, it's interesting. I think depending on who was talking, and maybe sometimes it'd be the same person, but I think there were kind of two main ones that would come up. Sometimes I think it would be in the terms of pity, right? So this person is lost in darkness and we're praying for them so they can come back to Jesus because that will be better for them. Like there's some actual genuine concern in that, you know? I mean, we can talk about some of the problems with it, but with pity, because pity always creates problems. But I mean, I think, I think that was a real thing for a lot of people, especially like, you know, parents didn't want their kids, their teenagers to have sex because they worried about like all of those consequences happening to them, you know? Well, as a parent now, you know, I think about that every once in a while and it it sounds trite, but it's just like, boy, they're so young. They are just so young. They don't know what they're doing. And, you know, if you don't rest with that as an insecurity on your part, then I can imagine that coming out in a good way, but also a negative way. Right. Uh, Hey, just, you know, just don't do it because it's not, and how can you describe that without sounding pedantic to your kids or whatever it is? Right. And then of course the other way that would come out was very much a preachy self-righteous. Let's uh, you see, look what the world is doing. And of course we're in trouble. And of course our society is falling apart because we do abortion or gay marriage or yeah. um, promiscuous sex, drugs, whatever it is. Right. And there'd be lots of illustrations and sermons or evangelists who'd come to your church and talk about how they were mired in sin and they were a prostitute or they were gay or they were, um, I don't know, whatever it was, but then God saved them from it. And now they don't do that anymore. 
Um, and so like it was I think those were the two like there's probably nuances of those I could talk about. But the main ones were either it was a like a I think well-meaning um, concern or pity or it was a self-righteous. Yeah, but look, we're not like that. And and I OK, maybe there's one other one. <laughs> there was a um, a uh, a fear involved with that. Right. Like watch out lest you find yourself doing that, right? So it's it was used, you know, it's just occurring to me, in some ways it's kind of similar to your three uses of the law, right? Like watch out that you don't find yourself there too, right? Yeah. Um, because sin is insidious and it starts out little and then it gets bigger and then you can't control it and, and all these these kinds of things, you know? And it really helps that, I mean, that one especially really helps with hormones and teenager and that uh, narrative because of the way that temptation and sexuality really works. Uh, it's not impossible, of course, to stop any of that. That would be a, f- a myth, but <laughs> um, when it's, it's, in, a, you know, it's a lot more complicated. Yeah, it's, though. it's hard. <laughs> um, yeah. So that fits in really well. You know, I thought about another way I, we're, we're just using this as a, an example because we don't want to get too deep. Another example and I'm going to say, we didn't talk about this before, but it's going to strike true to you immediately, is I remember so much, and it even happened before I get to co- got to college. My dad was into this a little bit. He was into Ken Ham a bit, and I didn't realize how much of that was this this church and culture Oh, yeah, for sure. Out until I got to college where you know, evolution was just a thing and people were like, yeah, okay, okay, no big deal. And and then they meet a Christian and it becomes yeah. this huge conversation. Yeah, I remember, um, like, I remember thinking that college college biology professors were part of this evil cabal that were out to, <laughs> to ruin Christian faith. I know that sounds yeah. silly, but I mean, I really had that perception, right? Yeah. It was very much this idea of, well, we believe in God's word and those evil uh, people are going to try and deceive you and trick you into this thing that's, you know, against God's word. And, and yeah, very much. That's a very good example of what we're talking about. I remember it's probably still out there, but I remember the, the best picture to illustrate this. And then we'll talk about the consequences, but it was a picture of two castles with cannons on them. And, you know, just right from the start, that's fascinating, right? Good Lord, though. That's all, it's really problematic. But anyway. I know, but it's just really fascinating how it, it illustrates this Christ and culture, church and culture stuff. Anyway, these two castles, of course, one's Christianity and one is, uh, I don't know what label specifically, but secular culture, the world, whatever it might be. And the canons for the church, um, if they were there, they're not there, they could not be there, or they're just kind of randomly firing at different things there. And I noticed that on the other side, the illustration is trying to point out um, that it, it is pointing all of its canons at creation. And of course, the canons are labeled stuff like evolution or so on and so forth. And it's suggesting that if those canons blew up, um, Genesis or creation, the whole castle would fall down. The whole thing would just oh, be destroyed. 
Gosh, sorry. I, yes, I, I remember that same kind of thing. And I, I pretty much bought into it when I was a teenager and even very early college, you know, and now it just makes me cringe. Yeah. <laughs> it's just so, yeah. It, it's, it's, I like that as an example. It does make me cringe too because of many things and we're not going to talk about most of them here. But what's fascinating about that to me in, in light of this conversation is you could pretty much translate most of the arguments around sexuality into this one of why all the story, the narratives that people are telling. So, for instance, if you believe in evolution, then you don't have true saving faith would be something somebody would say. Oh, yeah. And like, I remember even people talking about how, you know, Darwinism, evolutionism, whatever you want to call it, um, leads to ways that you don't have to have a sexual ethic then because we're just animals and animals do whatever they want, you know, but it all started with this thing or and, you know, there were other things they'd use to make that link. But that one came up a lot, actually. Yeah, if there's no God, then there's no morality, which is, you know, a theme, a string through this conversation, if you will. And it just, what I started to notice in college, based off of these examples and others, is that the church was setting itself up again, the culture, and I was right there with the church. I was right there saying, yes. Um, If you believe in evolution, and I had those debates with people, my best man at my wedding, um, he was my best man after I learned to love him because I was such an asshole when I was younger. Um, (laughs) Well, we all were. I I still am, (laughs) just in different ways. Um, But I remember we had this lazy job. We were stock boys, and so we sat up in the stock room for hours just talking. And most of that time, I was just arguing with him. And he would just look at me and he would laugh. And I'm like, why are you laughing? (laughs) And he would have a conversation with me about it. But uh, I just remember constantly thinking, how is this guy a Christian? Because he said he was a Christian. And I believed him because I could actually talk to him. You know, he wasn't just some figment of my imagination or straw man or whatever. And yet... He believed in evolution, and I just I couldn't get my mind around it. I had to have everything to convince him he was wrong. Yeah. Well, and because it's also interesting, because I had similar experiences, but there was something in me of like, if I couldn't convince him, then there was something wrong with me. And like, I wasn't able to actually confront the idea that if this is possible to be a Christian and believe in that kind of stuff, what does that mean for me? Oh, Okay, we'll say more about that, because I'll just say briefly, that was never a concern for me. I just always thought the other person was wrong. Oh, well, I mean, don't get me wrong. I had plenty of years like that, too. I I was uh, um, definitely a very (laughs) teenager like that. I think maybe all teenagers are. I don't know. But um, as I got a little bit older, part of it was I felt tremendous guilt because I had this idea that if people didn't believe and live the right way, they were going to die and burn in hell forever. And it was my job to help save them from that. Right. And so I was always really concerned, but I think, I don't know that I could have articulated it or said it this way then, but I think the fact that someone else could live differently than me or believe differently than me and apparently not feel any kind of guilt about it Mm. and apparently not feel like they were in danger of hellfire or whatever um like i 
I didn't know quite what to make of that no, because, <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Right. But no, but it was kind of like, what if they're right? Like, how do I, how do I really know for my own self, you know? And I could never really go there. So I just, that's when I kind of did what you did and just would keep arguing and trying to convince them that they were right. Partly because I was concerned for them, but partly because I think I needed to be right Mm. um, for my own sense of safety and security. I do want to talk about the big thing that we discussed prior to this recording of what it, what it looked like growing up uh, in the age that we did, because we might just be blind to it because we're not as young as, you know, we're not growing up in this time. But I think we kind of had a unique situation growing up in the age beyond the moral majority and, um, you know, very well into their influence for years through college, through high school, much of high school, all of college. Yeah. Um, and even... I don't know. For me, it was even into seminary a little bit. It started to wane. And, and of course, I'm talking about uh, the media and the way that they talked about it in terms of the culture wars. Uh, culture wars were kind of big, weren't they? Oh, my goodness. So it's interesting you brought up the media because it, for me, in my house, and my I think my world, the media were kind of one of the principal players on the other side of the war, right? Mm -hmm. Um, The media was the tool that was one of the tools that the devil used to um, seduce people away or to um, push unwanted, unrighteous social change, you know, to to normalize things that ought not be normal, (laughs) you know, that kind of stuff. But yeah, for sure, the culture wars were kind of saturated church life, I think. I mean, I remember um, when I was a teenager, the, they had put a petition in the church um, lobby that you could sign that, you know, and it said something along the lines of, I believe that marriage is between one man and one woman and said something about the Bible. And they were going to send it to, I was in Canada, so they were going to send it to our member of parliament, I think. And, um, you know, that kind of stuff. I remember all the stuff about abortion and um, uh, certainly the purity culture, which we've already kind of talked about. Philosophy. I mean, gosh, there's any number of these things. But yes, the culture wars were kind of um, all pervasive in in my experience of growing up. You know, the the one that really hit home for me, and I actually bought it, bought it hook, line, and sinker until uh, until sometime after a few years in the seminary, was the war on Christmas. I was going to say it was the war on Christmas, wasn't yeah, it? Well, that was always a big thing, and now that sounds so ridiculous, I but I... I bought into it. Yeah, very much. I bought Glenn Beck's book and I just read that through and through and I was like, I know nowadays I'm like, wait, (laughs) I did what now? I used to listen to Rush Limbaugh whenever I got the chance. So I'm not throwing any stones, you know, glass houses and all. But yeah, I remember like being at work and they told us to, I don't remember what they said. I think they just said it's better to say happy holidays. I don't think they even like, But I was just like, I'd tell people, well, have a good Christmas. And I'd be a real asshole about it, you know, Um, because it was ridiculous. And this is a Christian nation and blah, blah, blah. Right. Right. Um, Which in and of itself is a problematic assumption. But um, yeah, the or then, you know, even up till now, they're still talking about the damn Starbucks cups. I know. know? Yeah. 
because it was like green or something and that wasn't Christmassy enough. Like, I, <laughs> yeah, it got pretty crazy is, is what I'm trying to say here. Yeah, there was just tons of it, tons of it. And I think for me, um, why I got so involved with that was because it gave me a charge because by then I wasn't in college anymore. So I wasn't really talking to people who cared about evolution or cared about um, some of the deeper things that, you know, this podcast is on full display with what, what I like to talk about. But Christmas is something that everybody was talking about. And I happened to find myself in the Midwest by then. I was right in Michigan when it really became strong and then Ohio and so forth. And so it was easy and it kind of, it also did this interesting thing. Not only did it give me gratification because I could um, argue against somebody because I had learned to do that throughout college as a Christian, but it also gave me great comfort because I kind of knew who my allies were, who my friends were. Well, and it's a very, um, it's a very well-defined kind of thing, right? You, you have this assumption that America's Christian and always has been. And so therefore it makes sense. You know, you feel like you're on the side of right because the facts are plain as they would say, you know, you know, we can talk later about how problematic, how deeply problematic this was, especially in how it excluded people. But, (laughs) um, I think also because it was very, when I say basic, I don't mean that. I, I just mean in the sense of like, like you said, it's something everybody can pretty much understand. You know, mm-hmm. you don't have to be, you can be educated or not. You can, but if, if the pastor says something about that in his or her sermon, you know, on a Sunday, people get fired up because we all know what Christmas is. Yeah. And so I think part of the reason for its all pervasiveness was it was an easy one to focus on because um, it didn't take, like I said, it didn't take a lot of explanation. It didn't, it wasn't complex. It was just, here's this cherished thing, this institution that we think has always been the way it is. And now here is this enemy, whether that's usually the media, right? Maybe it was Democrats or whoever, but these evil people were now trying to take it away from us and replace it with some new secular counterfeit that was um, not as good and probably evil. Some of the things that happened certainly helped entrench this within our culture because, you know, you would have very vitriolic, uh, no, that's the wrong word, very visceral things happening where, you know, somebody would steal the baby Jesus from a manger. And then of course that becomes, uh, you know, what kind of atheist did this or. They're going to put us in concentration camps next. Yeah, right. (laughs) And and something else I I just thought of, and I'm not going to go like, you know, forever on this, but for um, my tradition, there's very much, they're very, um, in terms of their uh, eschatology, in terms of how they think the end times will work, there's very much a premillennial approach to all of this. So, you know, there's going to be a rapture. Jesus will come back and take the Christians away before a literal tribulation by the Antichrist happens, you know, and then eventually Armageddon and all that stuff. But there's always this idea that the world was going to get worse and worse and worse Mm. for, especially for Christians until that happened. Right. And then Jesus was going to deliver us from that 
through the rapture, you know? And so there was this idea then that we should expect these horrible things to happen because the world is getting worse and worse, which now makes me wonder then why are we fighting against it if we want the rapture to happen sooner? But, you know, whatever. But I'm just saying like this end times theology that was very important to this world still is. Um, definitely played into this idea of it being a war, right? Because we are the forces of good fighting against the forces of evil, um, which was always going to happen from the very beginning of time. Yeah, that's really interesting. Of course, we don't, in our tradition, we don't have that end times theology. However, we have something kind of equivalent, and it's been reflected in this conversation. And it's basically this, that evil is stronger than us. Evil is stronger, and so if we do not fight, then it will win. Um, We weren't looking for a progression towards uh, oppression or evil winning or whatever, but, you know, the whole idea of confession and absolution constantly is you're a poor, miserable sinner. You cannot... The gates of hell come up a lot in this conversation, and we always thought that that meant that hell was attacking us, and so we had to be on the defensive, and we had to push and fight. As for us, it, I mean, I'm not saying there was never a defensive element, but for I, I think by and large, it was portrayed as we were on the offense, oh. right? And I remember like the sermons about the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church, you know? Yeah. And um, there was this song that was terrible and theologically problematic even within that system, but it was, um, the words were, I'm going to the enemy's camp to take back what he stole from me. And that was basically this idea, right? Like we're on the offensive, we're going to go take back the world and the, everything from the devil, you know, because Jesus is fighting for us or whatever. Yeah. Um, very, it's interesting. Yours was a, was more of a defensive thing where ours was, I'm not saying there was no defensive element to it. There certainly was, especially maybe not realized, but happening, you know, Yeah. but the way it was portrayed was often uh, we're on the attack and we're, we're doing it to redeem the culture, right? We're doing it to redeem people and um, you know, that kind of thing. That's too much glory for us Lutherans. We didn't, we get uncomfortable. <sighs> Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm uncomfortable with it now, but at the time it was uh, You're uncomfortable uh, yeah. for different reasons. <laughs> yes. Yes. Not the glory yeah. piece. Uh, we're we're theology of the cross, and so we always are people who are suffering. We're always people who are having a hard time, who always uh, have sins that put Jesus on the cross, and so everything that happens is defensive for us. At least the way that I'm reading it, I can't speak for other Lutherans clearly because I don't know what the hell I'm talking about half the time. But for me, it was almost always defensive in that if you let this stuff happen to you, then slippery slope, you're going to hell or then you're losing your faith or whatever it might be. Yeah. It's just, this keeps coming up, but it's always amazing to me how in some ways our, the approaches we had were so similar and in some ways they were radically different at yeah. the same time. It is know? interesting. So, Hey, I got to ask you, um, then as we transition into the next part, let's first talk about what this gave us. What did this give us? This way of thinking about the culture wars and church and culture in general, What did this give us as Christians who were growing up in the world, or what did we notice it gave other people? What it gave us was we were the good guys, 
right? We were the ones who um, we wanted to help people. Like, like I said, some of this was very much couched in the world and worldly living is not good for people. And we want to save them from that. We want them to come and know life in Jesus like we have, you know, life abundantly, that kind of thing. And so it really gave us this identity of warriors, yes, but maybe even as crusaders um, in the Christian positive sense of the term, yeah. which I don't think there is one, but I'm just saying that this idea that we were, yes, we were at war, but we were at war. It was a war of liberation. It was a war of redemption, you know, like how people would talk about rescuing Europe from the Nazis kind of thing, which again is, has problems to it. But that was the kind of portrayal that it always was for us. We were the good, we were the good guys and we we're coming to help. Yeah. I almost always thinking back, I almost always didn't see the person that I was arguing with as the enemy, but the idea that they're holding on to is problematic. And oh, yeah. I thought to myself, if you could only just let go of that, your life would be so much better. Well, and we also, um, again, I say we, but in my own experience, but you know, the group I was part of, I think it's fair to say there was even like talked about as like demonic oppression, you know, uh, spiritual warfare, um, like, yeah, we don't, we're not fighting against these people. We're fighting against the principalities and powers that have them in bondage, you know, bondage to sin, bondage to whatever it is. And that's why we need to rescue them because they're held in bondage by Satan. It was almost kind of like a course correction to use another metaphor, right? It's like you're going down the wrong path. If you just turn and you go that way, you'll be in a much better place. Right. You'll be healthy. You'll be saved. You'll be on your way to heaven. You know, uh, not so much for my experience, but for some Pentecostals, you'll be prosperous and wealthy, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, which is its own thing. But yeah, very much it it was um, dangerous. And we we're trying to snatch people from the fire, honestly. Well, and after all, we think uh, as Christians uh, during this time, we were thinking that God's the one that's created the world. So, of course, he set this up. So there's no way to really argue around reality, reality given to us by God, even as far as it comes to Christmas, right? I mean, we could go that far. And so what we were doing, at least what I thought I was doing, was helping them see reality much, much clearer than they currently do. Right. And I think, too, there was another element of um, I remember talking about in terms of like the way that the world is now its state, its wretched, sinful state, whatever you want to say, is a product of the fall. Right. So before sin happened, the world was not like this. Right. And because as Christians, you know, we want to um, live in a way that is like it was before that, I mean, at least as much as is possible, you know, that runs into Mm -hmm. theological problems. But this idea that the redemption was, it was never supposed to be this way in the first place. And it's only through sin and these other things that we got here at all. Here's something that I, I was thinking that comes from that is we get to be the good guys. God kind of sets the terms for that. And what's really interesting, I, we hadn't talked about this, but it seems to me, at least if I were to reflect on my own past, that brought a level of surety and certainty that I desperately wanted. Mm-hmm. For sure, yeah. 
I I didn't know much, you know, going through high school, of course, you've got sexuality that you don't know much about, and then college, oh my goodness, <laughs> you think you know stuff in high school, then you get to college and you realize how little you know, at least uh, I did. If you're not a total asshole. Yeah, unless, yeah, unless you're a jerk. <laughs> um, and all throughout this, I'm clinging to something that I want to know, and this thing that's very easy for me to do, argue with people, is there, and I can be sure of that, so I cling to that, and I do it religiously, pardon the pun. <laughs> yeah, and I think I think that was true for me too, but I think with the added element of, if you remember how I said I never felt safe in or secure in my salvation, right? So these kinds of things, whether they were arguments or holding terrible signs at abortion clinics or whatever it was, or, you know, telling someone, no, have a good Christmas, you know, yeah, I'm sorry. It was terrible, <laughs> but I did that kind of stuff. Um, but it was a, it was a thing to do that was righteous, right? It was a thing to do that was good. That was on God's side. And so it helped, I think for me with those feelings of, I'm not really ever good enough and God's mad at me and I'm on my way to hell. It's like, well, no, no, no. See, I'm doing yeah. these things that are what God wants me to do. And they're very concrete and easy for me to point to and say, see, God, see that, see, I, I must be devoted to you because look at all this stuff I'm doing. Yeah, I got into this argument with some guy at Starbucks because he had a heathen cup. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. And that's that, you know, God, that's not comfortable. So clearly you must be important to me. Yeah. Like, I know that sounds ludicrous. And I think probably it was, but very much, um, it was very much a way of coping for me with the um, problematic and deeply terrifying <laughs> way I approached the world theologically. Yeah, it was for me, too. is very satisfying to be able to do that. Of course, we don't want to go too deep into this, because, but people do things for other reasons and theological reasons. And so for me, it was really deeply satisfying to know. Uh, that's why I use surety and certainty to know things. And at least I know this. I can at least say to God, or I probably don't phrase it that way. I at least say to myself, I will at least know inside that I did the faithful thing, the right thing. I probably wouldn't use faithful in my early life, but the right, right thing and defend God, not because he needed defense, but because other people needed to see that that defense was strong and right and that they would change their minds. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm thinking of, sorry, so songs were a big part of, of I mean, every, most churches, um, if not all, but like I'm thinking of, we had this, it's an old song, but I remember singing as a kid, um, stand up, stand up for Jesus, yeah. ye soldiers of the cross. Uh -huh. You know, do you know that one? Yep, I do. Yeah. And that, that song kind of encapsulates what we're talking about here is we are soldiers in God's army. I remember there was a kid song, even um, I'm in the Lord's army, you know, yeah, and yeah. Sir, that kind of stuff. And okay. it's like, yeah, I mean, this is just coming to me now, but this kind of thing was all over the place. This, you know, and then ironically enough, we eventually progressed into talking about how militant Islam was the problem. <laughs> you know, as we're talking about this, I'm putting a lot of these things together in ways I hadn't before. Um it, it's really helping explain to myself where a lot of this comes from. Did you, know? you have the song Onward Christian Soldiers? Marching as to war. Yeah. With, with the cross of Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. I just picked it. I was clicking on my computer. I found that Christ the Royal Master leads against the foe forward into battle. See his banners go. 
Yeah, I mean, for I mean, for us, there was a spiritual dimension to that too. That wasn't only applied in the sense of people, but it 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 certainly was the same mindset of we're that city on a hill. And you know, why does it? I mean, yes, the city on a hill matters because you can see it from far away. But a city on a hill is also really hard to attack. Right. Yeah. It's safe, you know. So. Well, and the last piece that I think is really important is what this gives us is a mission. Uh, we haven't really talked much about this so far. Maybe you think differently, but no, I think that makes a lot of sense. Okay. Uh, so the mission is this: that if you can convince somebody that they're wrong about whatever it is, or that that idea is wrong, or at least problematic, I probably wouldn't be that generous. <laughs> Young, it'd be yeah, it'd same be fun. Yeah then we could win them for Christ or convert them or change their mind. Lead them to Jesus. Yes. yes. I mean, you say mission, and it's it's interesting because, yeah, I mean, at one point, the Assemblies of God was one of the largest, if not the largest, missionary organizations in the world, you know, and I think it still is right up there. Mm-hmm. And this whole idea of missionaries being the one to take the gospel to the world, right? And these people who go all over the world and learn new languages and all this stuff, and they're presented as kind of, well, no, as heroes of the faith, you know, because they answered Jesus's call to go where it was difficult and they left behind all, you know, yada, 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 all that stuff. But very much like it was this idea that we have this good news and we need the world to be like us, right? I mean, we wouldn't say it that way, but that's, that's pretty much what was at work there. Yeah, and I think modern-day missionaries, at least in evangelicalism, missionary heroes would be, and you're not going to like this, but it would be the Ken Hams of the world. It would be those who are going out, and that's just one segment of this. Um, we had missionary heroes in the um, in the world of media on Fox News. There was Gretchen Carlson. She was right. you know, right. huge on the War of Christmas and a a hero for many Christians in terms of missionary. Shit, there was Bill O'Reilly, right? right? He did had this whole thing about Christmas and secular progressives, and then we all know what happened to that <laughs> yeah. um, person, right? Like it just, but yeah, very much people like him. Even people like Rush Limbaugh and Glenn Beck and all of this stuff, they were kind of viewed, maybe not officially from the pulpit, but very much within um, the church and with people you knew as part of this war on our side. Yeah. And that whole field of apologetics that still kind of remains, it does remain. I went to a conference and my asshole friend got me linked into a conversation with somebody. (laughs) Doesn't that sound wonderful? (laughs) And he did it on purpose. It wasn't an apologetic, but they had a booth and there was a guy there. No, you think I'd go to an apologetics Well, I was a little surprised. I was like, really? Did they drug you? (laughs) No, he was talking. He was a military guy. And so he was talking up this military friend that was at the booth next to this apologetics. And I'm just standing there there, like some dope. And then the guy next to him starts talking to me and just tired arguments, not really getting anywhere. And I'm just like, internally, Nate's like, abort, abort. (laughs) Like, how do I get out of this? It's still around, but when I was growing up uh, in high school and college, I really remember that was a big field. Uh, oh, yeah. For sure. You remember the case for Christ? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was all because of this mission. That That's not a tangent. All of this was 
important for the mission of Christ because the belief was that if we show that we have a defense, this is First Peter 3, which is not what First Peter 3 tells us, but First Pe- I think it's 3, right? First Peter? Yeah, uh, always be... Yeah, always have a, a be ready for a defense of your faith and so on and so forth. To answer for the, an answer for the hope that you have you or go. something like that. Yeah, see, I'm I'm bad at quoting stuff. That's why Ryan's here. Uh, well, that's my only reason for being here. <laughs> but we want to defend the faith. We wanted to have a reason for it. And if we showed them, the hope was, we showed them, then that would provide an opportunity for witnessing. And of course... There are tons of anecdotal evidence around that from these heroes that, hey, I talked to somebody and then all of a sudden they're a Christian. Right. Right. It was for I think I remember I don't know that anybody ever said it this way, but to use a metaphor that I think works, um, apologetics was uh, one of the ways you could win people. So it was kind of like, you know, if you're a military force, you have soldiers and you have engineers and you have snipers and you have generals and everybody does something different, but their whole purpose is all the same. Right. And so apologetics was one of those and sermons were another. And, um, the direct action of the spirit was one, all this, whatever you could go into it. But this idea was that apologetics was, the tool for the to win the intellectual types, you know, like even now, still, I, I live in Missouri and I was driving the other day and there's a there's a billboard yeah. billboard side. I wish we could ban them. But it says um, I think it said Jesus is risen beyond reasonable doubt. And then it had some phone number that was like eight, 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 four truth or some nonsense is, like is that. He? But what is he? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I like in the car, I'm like, well, you know, we should talk about that. Right. Cause <laughs> yeah. you know, you know, what does so many, what does that means wrapped up in right, that? Yeah. But, but yeah, just to say that that thing is still around for sure. Yeah. It's still there and it's because of what it gives you. Right. And that's, we want to be good here. We're not trying to criticize yet because there are people who hold to apologetics and I think done well, I think I honestly do done well. Certain types of apologetics is helpful. Well, and I have met people who list some of those apologetics types thing that really did kind of start them on their road to faith, as they would describe it. You know, yeah. So I can't throw them all out and say there's nothing good there because clearly they do something for some people. Right, right. And I think, you know, in terms of our conversation that we have longer, and this may be an episode at some point, but in the context of a modern world, apologetics can be incredibly useful because they at least, um, at the very least, they give you an idea of where the landmines might be. And you want to avoid certain uh, arguments, certain ways of doing things. And I think that's the really positive side of what's going on. But um, yeah, yeah, we, we want to be careful. We want, don't want to dismiss this. It doesn't work for me. I think for Ryan, it probably doesn't work apologetics very much. Uh, Not in the sense we're talking about it here. No. Yeah. But for others, it does. And for others, and I'll kind of end this time with something that I learned in seminary, surprisingly, uh, where, you know, it was still taught there for me. It was a professor uh, that said that apologetics are mostly for the Christian, not for the non-Christian. And I would agree with that, although it was presented very much the other way right. uh, when I was growing up. But yeah. And I think that having 
probably not that kind of certainty, but having some confidence, some strength behind one's belief, especially during a very chaotic time, such as college. I think there are better ways to do that now being on the other side. But still, I think that having that is worth some of these challenges that we're about to bring up. Thank you for listening to this episode of Frontier Faith. We will continue this conversation in the next episode where we start to show the deconstruction that was happening around church and culture. And then we will conclude this conversation in the following episode where we talk about a potential way forward and what that might look like. We hope you will continue to listen and join us for that conversation. And as always, thank you for listening. We will see you next time.